We're going to, like I said, be in the Gospel of John. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, I want to invite you to open up with me to the end of John, chapter 15. We've got just a couple of verses in John 15, and then we'll continue on into chapter 16 this morning. And we've been going through the Gospel of John for well over a year now, just following the life and ministry of Jesus. And as we approach towards the end of the book, the, the, the scene and the narrative begins to slow down a bit as Jesus begins to have this one final sort of conversation with his apprentices in the upper room. And he's been telling his disciples, his apprentices, that he's going to depart, that he's going to leave them, yet at the same time he begins to comfort them with the promise of the Spirit, yet at the same time he tells them that difficulty is going to arise as well. And I just, to start off, just want to invite you into sort of that moment. I mean, imagine your, your friend, your compadre, the person that you've been closest with for a few years now, all of a sudden, at least from your perspective, tells you that he's going to depart, that he's not going to be there with you anymore. And imagine sort of the disappointment or the shock that might have been experienced if you're one of those first disciples. I mean, some of you may be able to relate to this, right? When a good friend sort of all of a sudden tells you that news that, hey, we're going to be moving, and then that disappointment and that sadness because you have that close relationship. And I wonder if something similar is happening here with the disciples that as Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I'm going to depart, there's this sadness, there's this disappointment because they've been so close. And at the same time, Jesus tells them, hey, there's comfort though. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with you. He's going to empower you. He's going to lead you because the times and the, the, what's ahead is going to still be very difficult. And it's into this moment we find ourselves that Jesus begins to comfort and instruct his disciples about the promise of the Holy Spirit and also the impending difficulty that is going to arise. So we pick up our story at the end of John 15, verse 26. Jesus says this, When the Advocate, or the Helper, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Now notice that Jesus refers to the Spirit or the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth in that line. And that's interesting because earlier in John, and just in John 14, a chapter earlier, Jesus referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. So the Spirit of truth, what Jesus is saying is that the Spirit's job is going to point to the truth that is Jesus in person. That Jesus himself is the truth in person that the Spirit is going to testify and to point to and to lead people to the, the life and the ministry and teaching of Jesus. That as Jesus departs, the Spirit's job is going to be to point to Jesus. To testify is the word Jesus uses. But also notice that the Spirit is not the only person going to be testifying in the text. Verse 27, Jesus says this, you also must testify. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples, right? So the Spirit is going to testify, but so are the disciples, the apprentices. You also must testify. Why? Well, you have been with me from the beginning. You have been with me from the beginning. Now, some of your translations instead of testify might have the phrase bear witness to. That the Spirit is going to bear witness to Jesus and that the disciples too are going to bear witness to the life and teaching of Jesus. And I kind of think that sometimes in sort of our modern sort of culture, that this idea of witnessing or testifying to the name of Jesus sometimes can come across as like a little pushy. 
like sharing our faith can be kind of like this pushy experience where you're just trying to sometimes maybe project your beliefs or ideas on someone when they really don't want to like have a conversation with you or it's kind of this kind of insensitive thing where you're maybe just you know passing out a flyer or something and you know, there's no prior relationship in that sort of context but notice what jesus says about this bearing witness or this testifying that you're going to bear witness why well because you have been with me from the beginning that there's this key ingredient with, in Jesus' mind when it comes to testifying and bearing witness. That it's from a place of being with Jesus, of abiding with Him, of that close, intimate relationship with Him. And from that place, there's this kind of overflow of naturally wanting to share the goodness and beauty and grace of Jesus. You know, it's not like this forced thing. It's not like this like sales pitch where you're going to have to like meet a quota of like, how many people did you tell Jesus to tell about Jesus today? No, it's from this natural place, this relational place that Jesus says, if you've been with me, you will then testify about me. You know, maybe sort of kind of like a silly example to help with this. Recently, I got an e-bike, like an electronic bike. And it's the most amazing thing ever. So we live in Seaside, I work here, so I bike to work every day on the Red Trail, and it's awesome. And some of you found out that I got an e-bike, you begin asking me questions about it, like, you know, how much it costs, what does it do, all that sort of stuff. And just from this a natural sort of, you know, posture, I begin to share about, like, the goodness of the e-bike, right? Just how amazing it is. And it's not forced, right? No one's paying me to, like, sell the e-bike. I'm not like being forced to, actually I could have gotten paid for it, but I forgot about that. That's a side story. But anyway, I just shared the goodness of the e-bike, and then actually some of you have actually gotten e-bikes from that conversation. And so I should have gotten a commission for it, but anyway. <laughs> the point being is that it, it wasn't forced. It was just this natural overflow, because I just want to share the goodness of not having to pedal up hills with as many people as possible. Right? And so it's, it's not like this forced thing, this it's a silly example, I know it falls short on so many levels, but you get the kind of basic idea, right? And it's just from this place of joy, this place of just experiencing something that's so good that you just want to share it with other people. And I think that's what Jesus and the writers of the New Testament are talking about when they're talking about witnessing, about pointing to, bearing witness to the goodness of Jesus. Later on in the book of Acts, you read that Peter and John, two of the early apostles, followers of Jesus. They weren't like the most educated and well-trained men of the day, but the, the key ingredient, Acts chapter 4, says that they have been with Jesus. And it's from that place of what we've been talking about, abiding with Jesus, this sort of natural posture of wanting to share the goodness of Jesus comes about. But the thing is, as Jesus has been testifying throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has faced opposition. And as the apprentices, as they will continue the work of Jesus in testifying and bearing witness to Jesus, they too will face opposition. And that's why Jesus begins now, at the beginning of chapter 16, to begin to talk about some of these things, again, the coming opposition in the midst of their witnessing, in the midst of their testifying. Chapter 16, verse 1 says this, All of this I told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering service to God. Pay attention to that line there in verse 2. They think that they're going to actually be offering service to God. Verse 3. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this 
so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. Now, for Jesus' first apprentices, the threat of violence, physical persecution was a, was a deep reality for them. Right? And we read about this in the book Acts later on in the church history. This was a real threat for them back in the first century. Just a couple weeks ago, my wife and I watched this new movie about the Apostle Paul. So I think it's called Paul, Apostle of Christ. And usually I'm kind of skeptical about these sort of like Christian movies for a variety of reasons. But this one I thought was actually really well done. Just the cinematography, all of it, from just what was the content, all of that I thought was beautifully done. And one of the things that I really appreciated about this movie is that it really, at least for me, gave like a deep, authentic sense of what it potentially would have been like being a follower of Jesus in the Roman Empire under the threat of Roman persecution. Where you see these scenes of these men and women with their families being dragged away from their families and being used as torches in Caesar's palace and being lit up so that they would just kind of be entertainment for Caesar or being thrown into the animal arena as entertainment as the wild beasts are there just, and it's just horrific and just startling to imagine the, the violent persecution that the followers of Jesus faced in the first decades plus, first centuries plus, in the Roman Empire. And you just kind of watch through some of that and you see that. And then you hear as the followers of Jesus in this movie are wondering, how do we retaliate? How do we fight back? How do we resist? And the Apostle Paul says things like, do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a line straight out of Romans 12. And just kind of imagine the original context of a line like that being said. Or from Ephesians 6, Paul says our enemy is not flesh and blood. And you just wonder, like, whoa, I think my enemy is flesh and blood if you're in the Roman Empire, right? And it's just, again, that line straight out of Ephesians 6. And just to imagine the original context with some of this horrific persecution. And yet at the same time, for us in the 21st century here, you know, West Coast and California and Monterey Peninsula, we don't, thank God, face the threat of physical persecution as sort of a threat that will prohibit our witness or hinder our witness to Jesus. And so the question that I had as I was kind of thinking about this is, what is it that keeps us from witnessing to Jesus? If it's not necessarily physical persecution, what is it for us that maybe prevents us from living out our faith or wanting to kind of hold us back in our faith from living it out in a robust, beautiful way? Well, this could be a whole teaching on itself, but just briefly, instead of physical persecution in our day, I think it's something more along the lines of social stigma. Social stigma meaning that we, what I mean by that is that me personally, and maybe you can relate to this, care so much about what other people think about us especially as followers of Jesus in a particular context when we're with people who aren't necessarily followers of Jesus. You know, I can find myself in conversations with people who, you know, don't follow Jesus and, you know, we're kind of getting into the, like, the religious topic, kind of, you know, who are you, what are you about? And I get, like, all nervous and my voice starts to shake and I don't really know what to say. I can't think straight because what's happening, at least for me, is that I care so much about what that other person thinks about me as a Christian that I just, like, freeze. And it's almost kind of like this persecution of the mind, if you will, where it's not so much, like I said, the physical side of it, but, like, what other people think 
about me. You know, this happens with me often because, you know, inevitably when I meet someone new, the conversation ends up going, you know, down the road of what do you do for work, right? And so it's just like, inevitably, well, I work at a church and this and this, like what church? And it's almost as if Jesus has placed the ball on the tee for me, just like right here, easy peasy to talk about him. And I still just like break down and get really like anxious about it. And it's just this struggle for me to actually faithfully talk about Jesus in a way where I'm not just like worrying about what other people think about me in the process. Maybe that's just me, but can anyone kind of relate to some of those feelings? And maybe part of the reason is, is because, let's face it, the reputation that Christianity has in our cultural moment isn't the best, right? And so oftentimes what, what happens is that when people find out that I'm a Christian, I want to make sure I'm not like those kinds of Christians, right? I don't want to be associated with that person or that kind of group or whatever. And so there's this kind of tarnished reputation of Christianity. And so what it is, it's not necessarily me wanting to like have like the pure Christian faith. It's more about my reputation, again, what people think about me and wanting to disassociate from, you know, that group or that person or that idea that might be out there on the news or the culture. Or whatever, right? And so all that to say, all that what I'm trying to say is that the social stigma can be a, a very much in our cultural moment, this sort of blockade, if you will, that actually prevents us from being free from outcomes, being free from what other people think of us, to then naturally just live into witnessing and bearing witness to the goodness of Jesus in our day and in our age. You know, it can be very suffocating living in a moment or living in a, in a state of mind where you're just so over-the-top concerned. What does that person think of me? How am I going to be perceived? But Jesus wants to come in and, and free us from that. Free us from not having to be sort of overwhelmed by what does that person, what does that group think of me? But just from that natural place, just sharing the goodness and beauty of who Jesus is. But I also want to just highlight for a moment here some of the cultural implications of what's happening in our text. Notice I mentioned earlier verse 2. In verse 2, Jesus had said that these people who are going to do this sort of persecution to these first followers are going to do it in a way where they think they are offering service to God. That they actually think that they are doing the right and good thing. Now, if you read on into the rest of the biblical story, this comes up with, with Paul. You know, before he becomes a follower of Jesus in the book of Acts, he thinks he is doing the right thing by persecuting and killing other Christians. He even talks about that in his kind of short little biography in Philippians chapter 3, where he thinks he is being faithful to Yahweh, the one true God, by persecuting other Christians. And so what, what's happening here is that the truth has been so turned around, and truth has been redefined, good and evil has been redefined, where it now has become the good and right thing to persecute and kill another human being in the name of God. It's the flipping of good and evil. It's the switching of what is good and not good. And this, I think, we get in our cultural moment. The redefinition of what is good and not good. And claiming to then have the, quote, moral high ground. You know, we live in, Barna actually just came out with their sort of 2019 research, kind of a Christian research group, where they kind of talk about in one of their research reports, what are the most post-Christian cities in America? Monterey, the Monterey Peninsula, was number six on the West Coast. Ahead of Sacramento, our state's capital, ahead of Los Angeles, 
and even ahead of Portland, which most of us think of Portland as being like kind of like the mecca of like post-Christian you know culture, which a lot of ways it is. But all, all, all that to say is that the Monterey Peninsula area is a very post-Christian area, meaning that it's a it's an it's a region, it's an area, post-Christian being moving past Christianity. Where we've done Christianity before, now we just want to move past that. And so in our cultural moment of living in this sort of post-Christian environment, the, the, the kind of mantra is that we can no longer just disagree about different cultural topics, but now it, it goes past that. We're now instead of disagreeing with certain ideas and beliefs, it's now seeking to not eliminate physically other Christians, but eliminate the ideas and the teachings of Christianity from the public sphere. And I think that's what we face in our sort of cultural moment, where Christian ideas that have historically been held are now seen as not something to just disagree with, but something that are intolerant, insensitive, narrow-minded, and thus need to be eliminated and pushed off to the side. Error has become truth. Redefining good and evil, and then claiming to have a moral high ground, as was happening in the first century, now it's happening still in the 21st century. It just looks a little bit differently. Recently, I read an article in the LA Times that said about Christian beliefs that Christian beliefs are, quote, regressive views that threaten progress. Regressive views that threaten progress. So the, the idea is that we're moving as a culture to like our own version of utopia, and we can just leave behind all the ideas of Christianity, and we can just kind of have, essentially, as Mark Sayers says, the kingdom without the king. It's kind of the mantra of our culture. And so what happens then is that this becomes this sort of new kind of Phariseeism. Where historically, Phariseeism is kind of more associated with more like religious ideas, where you have to have the certain morals, these certain ideas, and you are in the in-group, and those are on the outside you look down on as not kind of living up to those moral standards. But the new Pharisees, and this is an idea from Mark Sayers, he has this great podcast called This Cultural Moment. He talks about the new Pharisees are on the other side now. Where they now hold it, where if you don't hold to the ideas and the values of our culture as described by our post-Christian culture, then you are now kind of sort of blacklisted and seen as an outsider. You are now outcasted if you don't line up with where the narrative of the culture is going. And so now Phariseeism has been switched, now be on the right and the left. And so this is just sort of the cultural moment we live in, in a post-Christian culture. Now it becomes the good thing, says our culture, to move past, redefine, and even eliminate core ideas of the Christian faith. Now, just a couple little kind of tidbits to add a little nuance to this before we move on. The first I want to mention is the idea of how we hold on to our beliefs. And the reason I say this is because historically, as followers of Jesus, we haven't always done the best job of holding our beliefs in a gracious way. I think we could agree with that. And the reason I say that is because the Bible has been used to justify all sorts of horrible things. And so I sympathize with people who maybe are a little hostile to some of the ideas and teachings of the scriptures because just historically speaking, the Bible has often been used, like I said, to justify things that are wrong. So I can sympathize a little bit with the idea of wanting to push back against some of the teachings of the scriptures. And the second thing I just want to mention is that who our enemy is not. And I think this is really important. As we talk about living in a post-Christian sort of culture, 
Our enemy is not another human being or that group or that person. Again, the words of Paul, even if we do experience hostility from what we believe, our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Meaning that if it has flesh and blood, we fight for it, not against it. That we embody grace and compassion in relationships. That people aren't going to hear our truth unless they first experience our grace in our post-Christian world. And I think that's so important for us to see that as we experience hostility, yes, albeit as a different sort than as perhaps the physical persecution in the first century, that still we still embody the same values that Paul described as not overcoming evil with evil, but overcoming evil with good. And recognizing that it's the kindness of God that leads people. Now with that, notice verse 3, the reasoning for this hostility. Verse 3, they will do such things because they do not know Jesus or the Father. See the connection there. The reasoning for the hostility in Jesus' mind is that they, that they do not have this deep abiding relationship with the one true God. And that's why I think it is so important that people understand the beauty and the goodness of who God truly is. That they really see and believe that there really is a God as good as Jesus says there is. And that they really begin to know and understand, not just intellectually, but in an experiential, relational way, who Jesus and the Father are. Because apart from that, we're just left to ourselves. And left to ourselves, we will end up redefining what is good and not good on our own terms. They will do such things because they do not know Jesus or the Father. But then verse 6. Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And Jesus recognizes, he's there with his friends, that this is hard for them to hear, that difficulty and hostility are on the way. But he says, verse 7, Very truly I tell you, it is for your good, or some of your translations will say, it is to your advantage that I am going away. Unless I am going away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Let me just pause right there. See, when Jesus says he is, quote, going away, he's not talking about going away in the sense where he's just kind of like abandoning them and just leaving them to themselves. No, we've talked about this, right? His going away refers to his impending death, resurrection, and eventually his ascension to the Father. And in doing so, the Spirit is going to come and be with the apprentices, be with the disciples. That is, Jesus is ascended to the Father, that he will be ruling and reigning over all, and that Jesus will be ruling and reigning as the humble king overall. And at the same time, the Spirit is going to come to empower Jesus' followers to live in this moment of hostility and opposition. But what exactly is the Spirit going to do? Like, how exactly is the Spirit going to work in and through this hostile world and in and through the apprentices of Jesus? Well, what, what kind of follows here is Jesus sort of breaks this down into kind of two many parts. First, how the Holy Spirit is going to work in the world. And then second, how the Holy Spirit is going to work in the lives of Jesus' apprentices. So, verses 8 through 12, how the Spirit is going to work in sort of this hostile world. And then following, verses 13 through 15, how the Spirit is going to work in the lives of the apprentices. So let's look at first, how the Spirit is going to work in the world. Verse 8. When He, that's the Holy Spirit, comes... He will convict the world. Now notice three things here. He will convict the world about first sin because people do not believe in me. 
about righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer, and about judgment, because the prince or ruler of this world now stands condemned. I still have many things to say to you, verse 12, but you cannot bear them now. So, so notice, notice that the Holy Spirit is going to, that word for convict, it's kind of like this idea of expose or show. The Holy Spirit is going to expose or show that the mental maps, if you will, the mental maps that the world has of what is true and what is not true are not actually correct, that there's actually a better way to live. That the way the world understands sin, righteousness, and judgment is not all aligned with how the world actually works according to Jesus and his teaching. That the world doesn't understand Jesus and thus doesn't understand sin. And the world doesn't understand that Jesus is truly ruling and reigning over all at the right hand of the Father and thus doesn't have a true sense of what righteousness is. And the world doesn't understand that the prince of this world, the enemy, the Satan, no longer has sway and that does, doesn't understand that we no longer have to live in the old patterns of manipulation and violence and greed. Rather, Jesus says, what Jesus is saying here is that the Spirit is going to work in such a way to convict, to expose, to show that the mental maps the world operates under are wrong. And that there is a better way to live. There is a better way to be human in God's world. Now, as a kind of an important side note, Remember, if you've been kind of with us through the Gospel of John, Jesus has talked about the world before. Jesus said in that famous passage in John 3, for God so loved the world, right? The world is something that God loves, that he sent his only son. So when we read this passage, we have to remember that it's in the context that the Holy Spirit is going to lovingly expose and convict and show that the world is wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is from a posture of wanting to show people that there is a better way out of love and to expose where areas in people's lives are wrong, that they would be led to the God who is love. Now, the Spirit is going to be doing this, exposing that the reality, the mental maps of this world are off. And that's what the Spirit is going to be doing out in the world. But secondly, what is the Spirit going to be doing in the lives of the apprentices themselves as Jesus departs? Well, that's kind of the second mini section, verses 13 and following. Look at what Jesus says. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you, the disciples, into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears. And He will tell you what is yet to come. Verse 14. He will glorify me, and it's referring to Jesus, because it is from me that He will receive what He will make known. Verse 15, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Now notice the work of the Holy Spirit here. Notice what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's not giving attention to himself, but the Holy Spirit, as he is working in the lives of the apprentices, what are the kind of the verbs that are attached to the Holy Spirit? He's going to guide the disciples in all that is true, the truth being Jesus. He's going to speak, not just what he wants to speak, but he's going to speak the words of Jesus. And he's going to glorify not himself, but he's going to glorify Jesus. All that to say, what the Spirit is going to do in the lives of the disciples of Jesus is bring the attention and the glory and the truth of Jesus to bear in the lives of the disciples. That the Spirit, when the Spirit is at work, 
in someone's life, we could say, that the attention and the adoration and the worship is focused and pointed at Jesus. That it's His truth, Jesus' truth. It's His glory, Jesus' glory. In His way that's being lifted up and magnified in the lives of the disciples of Jesus. And I think this is really important to understand the work of the Spirit in the lives of the followers of Jesus. Now, I love what one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Dale Bruner, says kind of about this idea. Kind of, he, he has this phrase called the shyness of the Trinity or the shy member of the Trinity. It's just a little book that he has. But he says this in one of his writings about the Holy Spirit. One of the most surprising discoveries in my study of the doctrine and experience of the Spirit in the New Testament is what I can only call the shyness of the Spirit. What I mean here is not the shyness of timidity, because Paul in 1 Timothy calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of power. So not the spirit of timidity, but the spirit of deference. A spirit of concentrated attention on another. It is not the shyness we often experience of self-centeredness, but the shyness of other-centeredness. In a word, the shyness of love. And this is exactly what Jesus said at the end of, of John 15. When the helper comes, he's going to testify about me, about Jesus. That the Spirit, when he is at work, is pointing people, showing people the beauty and goodness of who Jesus is. And that this is what the Spirit wants to do in your life and in my life, to illuminate, to glorify, to show the majesty and the power that this Jesus truly is worth your whole life, giving your whole life to. One more idea from Bruner, I love how he kind of ties this together, says this. It is often said that the Holy Spirit is the Cinderella of the Trinity, the great neglected person of God. But the Holy Spirit's desire and work is that we would be thrilled again. We would be excited again. We would be gripped again by the words and majesty and relevance of Jesus. The Holy Spirit does not mind being the Cinderella outside the ballroom if the prince is being honored in his kingdom. You see what Bruder is saying there? It's exactly what Jesus is saying here in our text. That the Spirit is pointing people to Jesus. But I actually, actually want to take this a step further. Because I think that Jesus and the writer of the New Testament take this a step further. That the Holy Spirit is not the only, quote, shy member of the Trinity. And by shy, we're talking about the deference, the, the, pointing to, the pointing to someone else. That actually all three members of the Trinity share this, quote, shyness. Let's start with the Son. Let's start with Jesus. Jesus, on multiple occasions, in particular, as he is beginning his ministry, will have various moments where the text will say that he is being led by the Spirit. He's deferring to the Spirit's leading. Matthew 4, Luke 4, when Jesus is going to go be tempted in the wilderness, the text will read, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Or Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Meaning Jesus submitted to the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit in his life. Also, Jesus with the Father. We've seen this most acutely through John, submitting to the will of the Father. Jesus saying things like, I only do and say what the Father has told me to do or say. And this is Part of what the Jesus is doing, he's deferring to the leading of the Spirit, he's deferring to the instruction from the Father. There's this other-centeredness within Jesus himself. But also, too, it's not just with the Spirit, it's not just with Jesus, the Son, but also with the Father as well. Two instances in particular. 
where Jesus is being baptized because he's coming out of the water. The voice from heaven says, this is my son. Listen to him. Matthew 3. Listen to him. Matthew 18, the transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured up on the mountain. The Father, the voice from heaven says, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. The Father is pointing to the Son, saying, Listen to him. The, the Son is submitting to the leading of the Father and the leading of the Spirit. And the Spirit is pointing back to Jesus, glorifying the Son, pointing people to Jesus. All three members, back and forth, in this mutual sort of self-giving, self-deferring love to one another. John Orkberg, he's a pastor up in the Bay Area, says this, each member of the Trinity points to each other in a gracious, eternal circle of self-giving, self-deferring love. He goes on to say in this book that this is, talking about the Trinity, the truest thing that has ever existed. That the heart of what all that there is, at the center of everything that there is, is a God who is an eternal community of self-giving, self-deferring love. And this is the core component, the core idea behind everything that there is, that God is, a, when John writes later on that God is love, this is what he's talking about. Each member within the Trinity referring to one another, acting in this way of self-giving, self-deferring love. Now, you might be kind of thinking, okay, that's some great theology, that's some great ideas, but what does this have to do with my sort of everyday life with God? How does this relate to, you know, Monday morning, hanging out with my coworkers, living my life in my own sort of way? How does this relate? Well, a couple of things I think I want to talk about as we close here. The first has to do with witness evaluation, this idea of witnessing. And maybe just kind of asking the question, you know, and asking yourself, maybe this week, when was the last time that we spoke to someone about Jesus and kind of pointed people to Jesus? Now, I don't ask that to, like, shame you or, like, bring a sense of guilt. Like, this is, I'm just basically inviting you into my struggle with this, where it's a struggle for me to talk about Jesus in, in a way that's, like, intelligent and, you know, not getting all wrapped up about nerves and, like, what people think of me. But maybe just asking that question, when was the last time that you had an opportunity and, and said yes to God in God's leading to speak about, to testify to Jesus? And just ask yourself, when was the last time and why was it? Why has why it maybe been so long in some regards? You know, I think what is important to realize is that we as followers of Jesus have been invited into a relationship with the God that is self-giving love, self-deferring love. And as we submit to the leading of God, we're being invited into this relationship of submission to God who is submitting himself to one another within the Godhead, right? And so as we are being invited to bear witness to Jesus, oftentimes what that means is laying down my own agenda, laying down my own sense of what I want to do, how I want to be perceived, how I want to be viewed in the world, and submitting to the leading of God in those moments. So maybe very practically this week, as the God who is self-deferring, self-giving love leads you into moments and opportunities to share about Jesus, take the risk and just say yes to that. You don't have to have all the theology figured out, but just speak about how God has been good to you in your life. 
think we all have a story to share about how God has been good to us. And maybe there's an opportunity to share that story with someone else this week. Second thing I want to talk about is spirit alignment. How do we live our lives that we might be aligned with the leading of God's spirit in our everyday life with God? You know, I think the first kind of, this is going to kind of be in two sort of subpoints under spirit alignment. But the first sort of subpoint is this idea of confession. You know, Jesus said that when the spirit is at work, he's going to be convicting. He's going to be exposing. He's going to be demonstrating areas and patterns in people's lives that are wrong, that are sort of off-kilter. And so I think when we think about the Spirit and how we can align ourselves with the Spirit, how we can partner with God's Spirit in our lives, confession is a huge part of that. Confessing the areas where we fall short, where we don't align with the way of Jesus, where, where we have patterns and moments in our lives where we are not actually representing Jesus well in this world. You know, every massive, major move of God in the world, we talk about revival throughout church history, has always begun with confession and repentance. And it always has begun with individuals recognizing and seeing their need for grace, their need for forgiveness. And confession is not something that is meant to just bring about shame and condemnation, but it's supposed to bring about this freedom and this refreshing to one's life. Peter says in Acts chapter 3 when he's talking about turning to Jesus, talks about repenting and believing in Jesus, to turn from your sin and repent and trust in Jesus, so that, he says in Acts chapter 3, that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. That as we experience repentance and confession, recognizing that we are broken creatures, and as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, that, that the line of good and evil runs down the human heart, that at best we're, we're all mixed bags, that we all come into this room not having it all figured out. That we all have junk, so to speak. You know, it's easy to kind of point the finger out there and say, you know, evil's out there, the world has all these problems, the culture's, you know, just way off kilter. But the question then becomes, but then where do I not fully align with the character of Jesus? And where are areas of growth in my own life? And so confession becomes this beautiful moment to not only just confess the areas that we fall short in, but also to receive the grace and forgiveness of God once again. <clears throat> to receive the goodness of God once again. And to then walk by faith, knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And that we've been given new life, and that we have been made new in, in being made new into Jesus' image. So may I just suggest this week, where are those moments, where are those areas? we might confess those spots, those areas where we fall short in the way of Jesus. Last sort of sub-point has to do with truth, and the truth through Scripture. We've talked about this before, but to align ourselves with God's ways by the power of the Spirit means that we're going to be people of truth. And the Spirit of truth, we've talked about it in the text, is pointing to Jesus. And so as we seek to be people of the truth, I think it's so important that we are people that are grounded in the Scriptures, grounded in the teachings of Jesus. Grounded in what he has said and what he's taught in his life and ministry. So just, again, super practical. Maybe this week, take some time. Take one of the four Gospels and read through them. Read through Matthew, read through Mark, read through Luke. Read through one of the four Gospels. And just, and just come to this place and ask yourself, Jesus, what is the truth that you want me to know? What is the truth you want me to submit to for the day? What do you want to show me? 
how are you leading me? And let the truth of the scriptures and the life and teaching of Jesus guide you into deeper connection and relationship to him. Now, all that to say, you know, you can be someone who practices the spiritual disciplines, you know, you can practice confession, you can practice reading the scriptures, seeking the truth of Jesus in them, and that doesn't necessarily make you like a mature person automatically, right? The mark of spiritual maturity is not how many spiritual disciplines you did or didn't do this week. That's not what dictates that. But this is important. The practices, the spiritual disciplines, whatever language you might use for that, are a means to an end. A greater end being a life of love and connection with God. And becoming more and more like Jesus. That as we practice the way of Jesus, as we practice confession, or as we practice reading through the scriptures, we're in, those are a means to an end of a life of love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, being more and more like Jesus. But as we practice those things, it's important that we also respond as God is leading us. We respond to those opportunities that God says, and God is inviting us to confess. We respond to God as He is speaking to us through the Scriptures. And it's as we respond to God's leading, as we respond to the Spirit at work in our lives, that Jesus and the Spirit are at work in, in us and through us, conforming us more and more into the image of Jesus. So with that, I want to invite the worship team to come up. And as we enter into worship, as we enter into a time of singing and worshiping Jesus, may this be a time where maybe it's an opportunity for you to just before God acknowledge the areas and the patterns in, life, in your life where maybe they're off a little bit. And this can be a time to perhaps between you and the Lord confess that you need more of Him, that you need His grace and forgiveness. And as we seek to be a people that are abiding in the truth, that we will recognize that God is pursuing us, that God is for us, that nothing you do or, or don't do earns or disearns the favor and love of God. That God is here with us, leading us and guiding us by His Spirit, so that we might be more and more conformed into the image of Jesus. Why don't we stand for